I'm Professor Neil Feinstein, and this is Conversations with the Creators. Sponsored by St. John's Master's Program in Integrated Advertising Communications, ideas thrive here. advertising a long time and when you're in advertising you have a lot of mentors and you also have a lot of people that become your idols. I've had many mentors um, but then a few weeks ago we spoke with Valerie Graves and she became my new advertising idol. She's got an amazing story. She's an amazing woman and so I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague Professor Audrey Siegel-Mavora to talk a little bit about who Valerie Graves is and why she's so wonderful. All right. Well, I'm just going to say, Neil, I got there first. Uh, I've been a fan of Valerie's for a long time um, because to me, she exemplifies um, strength and um, wisdom and um, a, a passion for really for life uh, and all that, that falls under the umbrella of life. And so it's, it's a thrill to bring uh, Valerie Graves to our podcast series in the students at St. John's. I wanna talk about Valerie in terms of um, the context of her as an author of a uh, memoir called Pressure Makes Diamonds. Uh, but it's the subtitle of that that, that really uh, gets me which is becoming the woman I pretended to be. And in fact, Val exemplifies the essence of that expression, fake it till you make it. A smart black girl from the strong working class projects of Detroit in the 60s, whose life path had her headed to one of America's elite colleges to pursue her passion and skill for writing. But, you know, life intervenes and a teenage pregnancy shifted that path, but not her expectations for herself and for her life. And so what I wanna talk about today with you, my friend, my idol, Valerie Graves, how did pressure help to create the diamond that is you? So students, I say, take out a pen, a pad, fire up your iPad, whatever you need to do, because I guarantee by the end of this podcast, you will too be a number one fan of Valerie Graves. Welcome, Val. Hi. I can't tell you how um, strange it is to have people calling me an idol, though. It's like, uh, <laughs> that really comfortable in that situation. <laughs> well, you know what, though? You're a living idol. So not those idols you put up on the shelf, you know, okay. and they get dusty and nobody, you know, thinks about them after a while. You right? are a living, <laughs> breathing woman. And so I want to start by asking you, you know, you said you you work you were very clear with us. You said, I'm gonna get personal. I'm gonna be real. I'm gonna tell the truth about my life. So can you start by telling us how you kept your focus on the future in the face of so many challenges as a woman, as a mom, um, multiple jobs, going to school? How, how'd you keep going? Well, um, first of all, let me say, there was a point at which I did not keep going. I kind of ran out of steam, you know, I was the little engine that could and then just, you know, after a while it just couldn't anymore. So let me not claim too much credit. But in terms of 
for example, uh, being able to go on to college uh, just a year after I had planned to do so um, and to ultimately be able to have a career that I'm, I'm very proud of uh, in the advertising industry was all about growing up from, from a very young age with the expectation that I was going to quote unquote, be somebody and go somewhere. That was so baked into my identity and my expectations for myself that when in fact I, I did become pregnant as a teenager um, and many other people lost their expectations for, for me. I realized that I had to be the one to hold on to them for myself. And I credit that with uh, anything that I was able to accomplish despite uh, it looking like I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. I had also, you know, some teachers, some uh, mentors, uh, both lifelong ones and people, you know, that I found along the way who just saw something in me and wanted to help me uh, for some high school teachers, but also, for example, one of the doctors at the hospital where I went to work uh, was someone who actually was there when my son was born. And then later on, when I went to work in the hospital, kind of remembered me and talked to me uh, when he would come to the ward and finally said, what are you going to do with your life? You, you're not going to be a hospital ward clerk for the rest of your life. So there were always some people like that in my life who were cheerleaders. Uh, my, my friend Sheila, who offered me the opportunity to uh, live with her family in Boston when I really decided that I needed to just hit the reset button. Um, so there were people, but the major thing was that I had to always hold that picture of myself that I had always had from the time I was a little girl watching TV and, you know, fantasizing being Marlo Thomas, um, that girl. <laughs> Didn't oh, we yeah. all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or Darren Stevens, uh, the witch, who had the coolest job in the world, doesn't really exist in advertising because he kind of did everything. Remember, he was the account person. He yes, was he the creative was. guy. He was everything. But that just seemed like a fabulous job that I thought... Um, I would be well suited to. So I, that was added to my picture, like what kind of life I wanted to have. And that person, that Valerie was always doing a little bit better than I was um, in life. And in some ways, I think she was just a, a better person than I knew how to be at that point. And so I was always kind of looking up to this future version of myself. And that is what becoming the woman I pretended to be is more about than the, the traditional concept of faking it till you make it, although I probably did that too. Um, but in advertising, you know, people who know how to put the best face on reality tend to be good at the job that, that I went after for myself. So I did that in my life too. It wasn't that, I wasn't uh, being honest about my life or where I came from or whatever. But, you know, for example, my dad, who actually was kind of a, a like something of a blowhard who was a, a union steward and made a whole lot out of that 
little bit of power, he turned into a lot of power. Um, you know, when I talked about him, I just didn't tend to share my negative feelings about the kind of right. father he was, but you know, the, the fact that he was kind of a big deal uh, in my hometown and, you know, made some money for a guy who started out on the farm. So, you know, all of those things, uh, that facility for uh, storytelling, uh, for putting the best face on the truth, for always holding on to that picture of who it was I had always thought that I was going to become, so that even though the path to getting there wasn't the one I thought I would be taking, uh, the destination remained the same. So I know you had a lot of dreams in your life um, and a lot of, of things, you know, that, that you, you wanted to make happen or that you wanted to have happen. But we also talked about how sometimes our dreams mm -hmm. um, don't turn out quite to be what we imagine. In fact, sometimes they turn into nightmares. And, and one of the things that you've talked about is how you take failures and you turn them into new opportunities. And I was wondering if you could share with, with us how you navigated some of those less than perfect dream realities um, and how you turned some not so great situations um, into uh, more positive ones. Probably the best example of something like that that I can think of is going to Motown. Uh, growing up in Detroit in the heyday of Motown, you know, with when the Temptations and the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and the Miracles uh, with Smokey Robinson, all of those people were just kind of, uh, you know, at the talk center, about idols, right? <laughs> right at the center of our teenage world, and they were just enough older than me, you know, to look up to them as people who were doing something that was just unattainable to me. But I, I didn't think that much about what was unattainable at that point in my life. I thought about what I wanted, you know, because in reality, I came from this, this factory uh, town upbringing. So anything beyond kind of having an office job, a, a pink collar job, or, you know, going to college and becoming a teacher, um, or going to work for the almighty General Motors was basically where everyone was. But Motown was this wonderful, um, idealized, glamorous world. And many years later, uh, when I was working as the executive creative director, I think it was at, at Uniworld, we did a project for Andre Harrell, who became the new CEO of Motown. And Andre called me up one day and I thought he was probably calling to ask the agency to work on another project for them. And in fact, he said, no, I want to talk to you. You know, can we have a drink this evening? And he offered me what sounded like the most fabulous job one could ever ask for to continue the legacy of Barry Gordy in making Motown more than just a record label. And Sounds I, like the dream of a lifetime. Right, exactly. I certainly knew enough to know that Motown was a powerhouse brand. And that did not change when I took that job. But what did happen is the thing that one of my um, 
girlfriend, mentor kind of people that I always discussed career moves with said, you know, the worst thing that could happen is that you would find yourself uh, just working at a record label. And in fact, um, even though I was allowed free reign to develop my own projects, the first priority of the record label was to launch a whole slate of new artists. And absolutely, that's what they did. Um, I found that in taking that job as senior vice president of creative services for Motown, which is just like, wow, you know, um, really, I was not considered a creative for the first time in my career. The creatives at a music company are the people who make music, music. you know, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I had to find my footing in that world. And actually, that would have been all right. It was pretty easy for me to uh, see the alliances of audiences and that kind of thing and, and come up with cool projects uh, that we could work on with major brands like Pepsi and Coors and Clairol, uh, for example. But it wasn't easy to get those things done in the context of an enterprise where they were trying to sell some records and not having a whole lot of success at doing it. So quickly, uh, I, I found myself not with this dream job of developing the Motown apparel line. It did get developed, but I found out as soon as I walked in the door that those rights had been licensed away before I got there, even before Andre had been appointed CEO. So there were many things that we could not do uh, with that Motown brand that were all part of what I wanted to do. There were other things that were more ambitious, uh, continuing Barry Gordy's uh, inroads into making movies that he did with Lady Sings the Blues and Mahogany and Enter the Dragon, I think was another movie that they made. Um, coming up with a hip hop uh, talk show, a variety kind of program was one of the things that I wanted to do and was talking with my former intern uh, who is now big, great big deal Hollywood producer, Reginald Hudlin. Um, so I was talking with him about projects like that. And those were the things that got back burnered. Um, one big disappointment was that I, uh, wanted to do, because Andre in a meeting, and Andre Harrell was a, a brilliantly creative, visionary sort of person who just um, started listening to some of the wrong people about which artists and which music to bring out at a label like Motown. But still, he was so creative, wonderful to be around. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a time when black churches were just being torched in the 90s. Yeah. And Andre uh, just kind of offhandedly said, you know, we should do a benefit for that. And by that time, I had learned enough about the business of music, which is not real business-like compared to a corporation or even a traditional advertising agency. I had learned enough to keep a good idea to myself for a while. So the only person I talked to about it was Andre. I said, you know, Andre, I think we could get some big corporate sponsors for a Motown rebuild concert to rebuild the churches. And he said, well, see what you can do. And I went and talked to one of my biggest clients who was then at AT&T about doing it. 
and you know was hoping just to get him as a a one of the sponsors and he just loved the idea and every concept that we had of this he made bigger you know we were thinking about doing something at the hard rock cafe in los angeles he said you know we just built this facility in atlanta for the olympics and we're going to be leaving it up for a while for the enjoyment of the citizens of Atlanta. So what I was there. <laughs> were you? Yeah, wonderful. He said, so why don't we do it there? Okay. And I know you were talking about talking to Fox about broadcasting this, but I want you to talk to our people who do network media buying instead. So, you know, there were there was all of that. And I just kind of floated back to my office about two feet above the ground um, and went to talk to Andre about it. And he said, you know, I don't want to do it because if it doesn't work, I'll get blamed for it. Wow. He, was, he was by that time already having, you know, some trouble with Polygram because he had fronted enormous amounts of money. Motown had spent enormous amounts of money and had not launched this new slate of stars very well. So that was a big disappointment. But some of the successes were along those same lines. Uh, I was able to get contracts for our artists with Clairol, for example, because we had a girl group called Shades, which unfortunately came out at the same time as Destiny's Child, who had a little girl named Beyonce yeah. uh, in the group. <laughs> Another <laughs> idol. Right, right. <laughs> our girls were cute, but Beyonce was it. Um, so at any rate, even without it, a real hit record, uh, they got a contract with Clairol. Our Mo Jazz label, we did a custom compilation uh, for Coors for, I think, Black History Month. Um, we also, one of those incongruous things that it's like, Valerie, how in the world did, did that happen? I got boys to men involved with the United States Department of Health and Human Services uh, in a campaign against teenage cigarette smoking. It's kind of not very well known fact, but I also had done some pro bono work on the issue of teenage smoking, that black kids don't tend to smoke cigarettes, and especially black girls. They're almost an example, you know, to the society about, you know, not smoking. And so it's easy to get voiced men to come out and do that. And there was a big launch with Donna Shalala, who came out and gave them a pound, and we got covered on national news. Now, by that time, I was actually living out in California and just working out the last of my contract with Motown while my husband was, was going to Stanford for a minute. Was there any point at which in any of your, you know, kind of better or worse setting, was there any point where you just, you had to admit defeat? You just threw up your hands and said, it's not going to happen. You know what? I didn't admit defeat, but they're absolutely, and it was in that Motown moment, and it was thanks to a lot of metaphysical reading and learning that I was doing, that I had to admit that I was not in control. And giving up control and just trying not to be part of the chaos and to go to work every day and say, well, what might I do? for Motown today, instead of feeling that I was somehow entitled to execute my grand vision. 
um, worked very well for me. It, it was a chaotic environment. They had overhired and at one point, 43 people were laid off. And I thought for sure, I was going to be one of them because compared to how effective I had been at my last job, I didn't feel effective at all at Motown. But what I didn't know was that like not a lot gets done at record labels. They're waiting for a hit that they can get behind, you know, and then bring- And then they're gonna ride that. Yeah, yeah right. Um, so I was one of those people who was used to working every day, you know, so I was like, oh, I got this little deal with Clairol. I got this little deal with Coors. Uh, we're going to get boys to men involved with the government, you know, um, and I found out that I, Andre really kind of sold me that way to his artist management, you know, all we need is a hit, you know, and we got Valerie to make these things happen for you. Um, so once I gave up control, wasn't quite the same as admitting defeat, but I, I didn't I remember writing in my journal. I, I am not controlling anything up at Motown. That is for sure. So moving on in the area of control, I want to quote you um, in a conversation about the challenge of being a black woman in a white man's advertising world. You said understanding white people is key to survival. Can you talk about the reality of being an other in the room and kind of how you work around it, through it, against it, um, to, to be more? Well, you know, it, the way that you pose the question is, is great because that's exactly how it happened. It wasn't always the same experience. Uh, at my first job, when after a couple of weeks, no more than that on the job, um, Hal Bay, who was the creative director on the Pontiac group, said, there's two girls I see in the halls around here. The other one was a woman named Beverly Okada, whose name at the time was Beverly Bjorkland. And she's a little Japanese woman who had the name of, you know, big six foot tall Swedish blonde, <laughs> <laughs> who was actually her husband. Uh, but at any rate, Hal said, give me those two girls. I want to see, you know, what it might be like to have a couple of girls in the group. So my, my first real creative assignment was as one of two women with a group of 22 men, um, which includes the account team, on the Pontiac group. And at that time, I was just happy to be there. I just, I couldn't believe that I finally worked in advertising in that building in Bloomfield Hills that I had been passing by all my life on the way to Detroit. It's like the, the straight route to Detroit went right past Darcy. Um, and I thought, boy, I don't know what they do in that building, but that's what I want to do. You know, I don't know what advertising is really about, but I want to work in that building. And, you know, there I was. And for a while, that was it for me. And I was just trying to fit in. Um, I've often joked that I could have called the first year of my career, my life as a white guy. Uh, <laughs> that's what it was. It was like learning how to kind of fit in with the guys, um, how to laugh at their jokes. I have always, you talk about pressure, I have always been one of those people who really felt the pressure of having to be clever all the time. 
which is very real in an advertising agency. And I don't, I really couldn't say that I ever really got the hang of it. I had to compensate for it by, you know, doing good work and, and like surprising people. That Was actually, that because you were in the room as a woman, in the room as a black woman, or simply you've got this title of creative, creative people are clever. Yeah, it was more of the latter than anything else, but everything entered into it. You know, the whole chicks ain't funny thing. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the guys, Ackroyd or Belushi or somebody. Yeah, said, well, Lauren Michaels had to learn uh, that differently. Yeah, that didn't he? Yes. yeah, despite Gilda Radner being in the original cast. But anyway, yeah, it was it was all of those things. And it's just who I am as a person. Um, Everybody thinks they're shy. I would not call myself shy, but I am more of an introvert than some people might think. Um, and introverts either have to get over it or you know, just outshine it uh, with yeah. your output. And I, I, some of that, some of my early success had to be due to people's low expectations. They, they thought that I was some sort of affirmative action hire, which I sort of, was even though there was no affirmative action program, you know, uh, but affirmative action does not mean that you're not good at the job, you know, that you're not talented. It just means that you're given an opportunity. Well, I think that depends on, you know, what bias you come at mm -hmm. uh, when you hear that. And I want to talk about that in the context of our students. Um, one of the things that that um, you and I have both been very active in um, is creating access and opportunity for young people. Mm -hmm. um, and many of our St. John students are eager to take on internships, learn, you know, from advertising professionals, but they don't always either know how to or have direct access to those people. And I was wondering if you could, you know, speak directly to them about um, your thoughts on how they should approach this. Okay, first of all, there are um, at least two really well-established internship programs that I know of that sometimes uh, have difficulty finding applicants. And I do think it's probably because people don't necessarily know of them. One of them is the MAPE program, the Multicultural Advertising Internship Program from the 4As, the American Association of Advertising Agencies. That has been around for, you know, at least 40 years, probably 45 years. Um, and it's an excellent program. Uh, it pays a stipend for the summer. It is competitive, but people do get in. Um, and it brings you, that program actually has expanded outside of New York now too. It used to just be bringing people into the city of New York into major agencies, but it, it's still around. All you have to do is go to their website and get the information and apply. And I would imagine the time to apply is sometime around January, February something like that. So that's one excellent internship program. And the other one is the internship program of the Advertising Club of New York, where I was on the board of directors for many years. Um, and same thing, uh, finding quality applicants was always an issue. 
And so, you know, your students can certainly apply to that. Those who are a little further along in their career, I'm very proud of a program that is for people who have five years of experience in the business for women who have five years of experience in the business. And that is the Advertising Club of New York Women's Fellowship. That is designed- Fantastic program. You know, that, that I, I'm so happy. That was actually uh, inspired by uh, my year with my husband in his fellowship at Stanford University. Tiffany Edwards, who is now, um, I think, global director of DEI or something like that for Droga 5. Are you hearing that noise? Yes. <laughs> that, is, that is the city of New York outside my windows. And I have moved to the quietest corner that I can find. It's <laughs> all right. We're quiet. I apologize. Um, You're in the greatest city in the world, right? Right, right. With the greatest department of public works, I guess, <laughs> in the world. Um, but at any rate, uh, Tiffany Edwards heard me talking in a board meeting about my husband's experience in the fellowship and how it just uh, sets up a lifetime of progress, you know, from great contacts all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. And she was inspired and created the Advertising Club of New York's Women's Fellowship. And I'm yeah. delighted with the results that the fellows have had. It's now, I believe, in the fifth year Yes, it is. It's a fantastic program. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, we, we could talk all day and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we will. But, <laughs> but today uh, I'm going to uh, respect that you have other things to do and just ask you to go one more place with us. So talking about progress, as you just did in, in, in the context of the fellowship program, what comes next? What comes next for you as a experienced, aging, wise woman in this business? What are you doing? Well, at this point, the advertising work that I do is, I'm, I'm blessed that I only work on things if they interest me. Um, when uh, someone that I had worked with at a, a different entity called me to do some work for the NBA a few years ago, it was just like, oh, now that's another dream come true. We're an NBA family. My son has been a sales executive for many years until the pandemic uh, with NBA teams. My husband's a super fan. You know, we're, we're just a basketball family. Um, and so that was wonderful. So working on projects that pique my interest and uh, there's, there's something that is going on there right now that I'm not quite hooked up with yet, but, but I actually proactively am going after the opportunity to do some other work with them. I just did a commercial for them, uh, for the WNBA uh, in support of getting vaccinated. So I'm just, I'm still doing work that interests me. I would like to write another book. I'm in the very earliest stages of doing it. Um, it's not unlike my first book, but it, it's, it is not um, as chronological 
and mm -hmm. linear as that is it's uh, it has to do with the experience of growing up where i grew up uh which always means something about being black you know um because i've been that my whole life uh but it's also very much about being a, a child of car culture you know um so anyway stay tuned i well i, I look forward to reading it i look forward to um to hearing more uh, from you and about you. Um, and I know that our students uh, are going to listen to this podcast more than once. So thank you. Have a wonderful day. Listen, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Okay. This has been Conversations with the Creators, sponsored by St. John's University's Graduate Program in Integrated Advertising Communications. Special thanks to all who helped put together this podcast including Professor Audrey Siegel-Mavora, Kevin James, Professor Edrix Fontanilla, and our producer, Lucy Aquaro. Keep on ideating. <laughs>